Okay, where we left off. We talked uh, the first two lectures about the different types of IP, basically the law, what the law is, the positive law. And I explained that this course will and why it will focus on patent and copyright. Also, we had a good uh, deal of discussion about the historical origins of patent and copyright, how copyright arose uh, from government censorship and patents from monopoly privilege. So today's lecture, I'm going to go over the uh, a little bit more about the what this history has resulted in, uh, the entire overview of the kind of modern web of treaties and statutes, legislation that defines and governs all of these different IP rights, just to give you a good overview of what it's like. Then we're going to basically discuss the main two justifications offered for intellectual property, which is the basically the principled case, which is rights-based or deontological. Um, or natural law-based, and the more practical uh, wealth maximization-based, which you could call utilitarian or consequentialist. Um, the adherents are sort of all over the map, and they don't really label themselves very clearly. Hello, test, test. Can you hear me? My microphone uh, level is not going up. Okay. And I would like to spend a little time going over uh, – I mean it, I find it astonishing how many – uh, uh, I, I was just picking through the posts I posted in just the last week alone since the last course, the last seven days on C4SAF. Now, I do post a lot there, and I, uh, I, I think I put about one-third of those posts um, here to summarize, to discuss. Um, there's just so much news on a daily basis of uh, um, trademark, trade secret, patent, especially patent and copyright. Um, uh, news, usually com completely outrageous um, cases of, of abuse and injustice. Um, okay, so I'm going to go over here a few of those just to give you a flavor of what's going on. Um, Jock says the death of Acta Song was taken down in a copyright claim today. I, I did not know that. Uh, I'm curious what the uh, who claimed copyright in. Uh, oh my god, yeah, Tech Dirt. Uh, that was on Tech Dirt. I might post that later. Thanks for posting that. Uh, Mike Masnick is the guy at Tech Dirt, and he's a, a friend, and he's actually on the board of my C4SIF, and he is so prolific, I can't keep up with the guy. He posts more anti-IP stuff um, than I can ever hope to. <laughs> um, put this microphone right in front of me, see if that works a little bit better. So here's one here. Uh, lawmakers are pushing for a rogue uh, websites bill. So this was some. This is just, I think, last week. Some congressmen vowed to pass legislation to give the Justice Department new authority to go after foreign and domestic websites that sell pirated music and movies and counterfeit goods. So now we have rogue websites. I did a post called "Patent Defendants Aren't Copycats." Um, Who's the real? So who's the real inventor here? By the way, almost all these are live links in the PowerPoint file that you could click on to go to the. Um, you might be able to do it right now, actually. You go to the um, to the link. They're all on c4sif.org, um, highlighted at the top there. So in this post here, um, this is actually an older post, which I, I had never posted on this blog, but I posted somewhere else. Um, 
just based upon – I think this actually might be a link to a post by Joe Mullen, a pretty good uh, IP reporter, and basically he reported this study that showed that in, say, a typical class of patent infringement lawsuits for the computer and software ones, less than 3% of these lawsuits um, had even alleged that there was copying, and, and only 1% had proof of copying. What, what that means is in a patent lawsuit… Uh, most people uh, lump copyright and patent together, and it is true that one element of a copyright infringement claim is some kind of access to the original of the copyright holder and some kind of copying of it, reproduction of it, or making a derivative work based upon it. So um, that is true. Um, so most people that are uh, guilty of copyright infringement have uh, done something… Based upon the original author's work, not that there's anything wrong with it, but they they have. In patents, it's not the same thing. Jock is asking a question here. I'm not sure if that's for me. Um, I don't I don't understand the question about me not sitting in a court. Anyway. Uh, if you ask a concrete question, I'll be happy to answer it, um, but I don't follow what you're asking there or what that relates to. Maybe I missed the conversation. Anyway, let me go ahead on. The point, of the, 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 the point here that's relevant um, – the point, the point that's relevant is um, um, most people say, um, you know, don't steal my invention. Okay? They'll say that you know, this guy ripped off my invention or, or all these patent infringers are ripping off someone's ideas. But the truth is, in, in most cases, I mean, I don't know the actual numbers. I've done a lot. I've been involved in a lot of patent infringement lawsuits, and every time I've been involved, uh, the, the defendant or the person accused of patent infringement never did even – they weren't even aware of the other company's invention or patent. Um, they were just you know, making their own products. They have engineers working on designing things to solve the, uh, different, different problems to come up with a workable design. And as they do that, they, they, they stumble across different ideas and ways of arranging. Later on, usually someone will say, hey, I just read this patent. It looks like we might be doing something kind of close to that. Or they'll just get a letter out of the blue uh, from some patent holder saying, uh, your product that you're selling is infringing my patent, and that's the first time that they ever heard of this patent. The point is these are basically independent inventions, but they're being sued because they happen to step on something someone else also independently invented before, which is similar. Um, you do not need to allege copying to show patent infringement. You only need to show um, that the accused, the accused infringer is making, using, selling, or importing a device that basically has all of the elements that are in the claims of this other patent. It's got nothing to do with access, nothing to do with copying. It's got nothing to do with it. Now, if you could show blatant copying from a patent, you could maybe get enhanced damages by – that would be called willful infringement, willful. But infringement doesn't have to be willful. Um, anyway, uh, Eric Smith asks, for my job, do I have to send out those letters? Well, I'm a general counsel for a small high-tech company, so I do all of their law. I do um, corporate law, commercial law, employment law, um, uh, uh, fundraising, SEC-type stuff, uh, securities work, all that kind of stuff. M&A. Also, I handle our patent acquisition, but we, are, we do not um, 
uh, we do not sue people for patent infringement. That's not the reason we have patents. We acquire patents just to have an arsenal uh, of patents to dissuade people from suing us. We just want freedom to innovate, which is exactly uh, – this is a good segue to uh, – so no, I've never sent out, a, uh, sent out a letter, and I wouldn't do it because I think it's uh, uh, immoral and wrong. If I, if I had to do it for my job, I would have a conflict, and uh, I, I just wouldn't be involved with it. Now, I have responded to such letters, and I've, I've examined um, uh, patents of competitors and others when there's a potential um, concern that we might be infringing or an allegation or something like that. And then what you'll quite often do is you'll do an opinion or hire an outside attorney to do, to do a, a, a non-infringement opinion, we call it, or an invalidity opinion, and you just put that in your drawer so that if you're ever sued and you lose… Then you can hope not to get willful infringement damages, trouble damages. Hopefully you only pay regular damages because you can show, well, my infringement wasn't willful because I was relying upon the advice of an attorney who told me I wasn't infringing, and that was reasonable advice. I mean it's all kind of crazy things you have to go through. Those opinions can cost twenty, thirty thousand dollars more more than it takes to get a patent. And if you get sued, of course, that could cost millions uh, to litigate. So the costs are extreme. Um, uh, but speaking of our acquisition of patents, I mean we only have 40 or something like that. Um, if you look down here at the bottom of page five, slide five, Google's defensive patent acquisition. So this is just in the, uh, in the news this week. Google, you know, they have this comment that they think there's a lot of junk patents out there. They think patents impede innovation in a lot of cases. Um, they're in favor of patent reform. But they said that there's a company in Nortel that's in bankruptcy, and they're going to make a bid. For the, that company for Nortel's patent portfolio, and they explicitly explain in their press release why they're doing this. They're doing it just to protect themselves from being sued. They say they're bidding to create a disincentive for others to sue Google so they can continue to innovate. So they just want freedom to operate and innovate. I mean imagine if there were no patent system. All these companies wouldn't have to waste all these hundreds of millions of dollars um, uh, changing their product design to get around patents. Um, being afraid to go into a given line to be uh, out of fear of being sued, um, uh, wasting money on patent lawsuits and insurance and patent attorney fees. Um, let me put my phone on airplane mode so no one can bug me during this thing. Okay, so that's a good example, and I don't know how much they're going to pay, but they're bidding for… A big patent portfolio. I, I didn't do a search on it. Uh, I bet you they have hundreds of patents, so I wouldn't be surprised if they pay, uh, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars for this portfolio of patents, just so they can keep innovating, just to make people afraid to sue them. The reason that, the, by the way, the reason that works is, let's suppose um, uh, some company wants to sue Google um, for infringing one of their patents. Now, if they're a big company with their own products and technology, Google could pour through their own patent portfolio and try to find one that they're um, um, that the other company is violating, so they could counter sue them. So it's sort of like an uneasy standoff. Sometimes I, I refer to this as a porcupine defense. You basically are acquiring these patents to make people afraid to sue you. Um, I, I might have mentioned this last time. What this leads to is either an unofficial or even an explicit uh, agreement between companies not to sue each other across license, in other words. So you know, Intel might sue uh, Amazon, or I, I can't even keep track of who's suing who nowadays. Apple might sue Amazon for um, patent infringement or for trademark infringement right now for the App Store idea uh, name. But anyway, let's say Apple sues um, uh, 
uh, Amazon, and Amazon countersues Apple, and they both reach a settlement where they cross-license to each other the use of their own patents. So they just go back to business, or they might do this sort of uh, without an official agreement. Just they just don't sue each other in the first place because they're afraid of a countersuit. What this does is it makes it hard um, for the little companies to uh, uh, to enter this arena. Basically, it's like a, there's all these companies with hundreds and maybe thousands of patents, and someone without any any patents of their own or without many patents. Um, they could, they're vulnerable to being sued, and they have no patents to countersue with. You see, so they're defenseless. So, basically, patents create barriers to entry to smaller companies and independent inventors and, and uh, uh, people like that. So, you, it basically tends to cause concentration in larger companies. Jock asks, if Google decides to do no evil and not sue someone using an hotel idea, is there a limit to the time they could sue? Uh, presumably the entire life of the patent. Uh, well, there actually is a doctrine in U.S. law. It's called latches, L-A-C-H-E-S, um, and I'm actually – I've never been quite clear on how that works exactly in the case of patents. Latches is sort of like an equitable defense. It's like a stopple in the time sense. What it means is you waited too long to assert your rights, so now it's unfair. But in the past, a lot of people have actually done this on purpose, and they've gotten away with it. Um, this guy Jerome Limelson, this famous uh, prolific inventor, he had hundreds of patents, and he would let them pen for for decades in in prosecution. Um, hold on a second. Let me let me uh, shut this dog up. I'll be right back. Okay, sorry about that. Um, so what he did this this was before the patent law was reformed in the 90s to prevent what's called submarine patents. Um, uh, under the current law, as I mentioned before, the term of a patent is 20 years from the date you file it, but the the term doesn't start until it issues. So typically, it takes about three years for the patent to issue. So you have about um, that's called the the, the uh, prosecution phase when you file it. Then the patent attorney prosecutes it with the patent office. He goes back and forth with the PTO um, until it gets issued, if it does. Uh, when it issues, then you have the remainder of that 20-year period that you can enforce it. So if you take 10 years to prosecute it, you only have 10 left, so there's a penalty to you. Plus, it's published at 18 months now. It didn't used to be. Um, patents are now published at 18 months uh, in most cases, um, which means people are at least aware that these patents are, 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 are pending at the, at the patent office. Um, but under the old law, the term of the patent was 17 years from the date it issued, okay? and they were secret when they were, when they were pending. So this guy Limelson would, would keep filing what's called a continuation application. It's like when you get to the end of the prosecution, say two or three years, you just pay another fee, and you, you start over again, but it's all secret. He kept doing that and doing that um, uh, sometimes for, for 30, 40 years. He did it on purpose because in the meantime, his ideas were independently invented by others and adopted like in the auto industry. I may be thinking of the wrong guy. He, he, I forget uh, if he was the intermittent windshield wiper guy or, or he had other ideas. But anyway, when he died, he was worth like $500 million from all these patent license fees. So what happens is the patent will just emerge all of a sudden 
like a submarine. That's called, why it's called submarine patents. Um, in the middle of an established market, and he's got 17 years, years left to sue. So he would just sue people left and right, um, or send out letters, and everyone's got to pay because you know this this invention is already built into all the products. Uh, now, back to your question, uh, Jock, about um, uh, waiting. I think once the patent issues, and if you actually know of a given person who's infringing and you don't do anything about it, um, after some period of time, there may be an argument on their on their side that they could argue latches, L-A-C-H-E-S. But actually, I haven't researched that issue in a while. Um, um, I started to research it, to be honest, a few years ago because we were wondering at my company about that issue. But we don't intend to sue anyone, so I don't care. I don't really care if um, uh, that right to sue lapses. I don't think it would be used against you in a countersuit. Now, if you just hauled off and sued someone, you could be in trouble. But if someone sues you and you countersue them, I think they'd have to have um, a lot of chutzpah to use an equitable doctrine of latches against the, their victim. But I'm actually not sure about that. Bottom line is there may be some danger in not enforcing your right. You might some of you might find this doctrine interesting. L a c h e s. Okay. Oh, here's another recent one. Um, I'm from Louisiana, and so the New Orleans Saints is a professional American football team in um, uh, New Orleans, and uh, so they're popular in Louisiana. And there was an interesting story about so some guy. Um, um, he's a descendant of some families, family families of um, New Orleans, but he now lives in Vermont. So he, he fought a lawsuit against the Saints in the NFL for using the fleur-de-lis symbol. I mean, this is crazy. I don't even know if the Saints own the fleur-de-lis. They might own their particular drawing of it, but fleur-de-lis are all over um, the world, France, everywhere. Uh, okay, there. this next uh, link – I'm on slide uh, six, by the way. The next link, um, everything is a remix. I just someone sent me this, this two videos, uh, and I think it's part of a project. There's more coming. Some filmmaker did a great uh, sort of um, we'll call it amateur. It's a really good job showing how the idea of remixing is just all over the place in um, in art. I mean, it's just part of what artists do. They take other uh, others' ideas. Jock says the guy's going to do four videos. Yeah, I think that's right. So the first two are superb. Uh, there's another one I've seen before about uh, jazz, some kind of beat in jazz. I've blogged, blogged about it before, um, how this so one kind of beat, this drum drum beat or some kind of beat rhythm in jazz uh, has been around for, for decades and has morphed over time. And, uh, and also Nina Paley has a good related one. It's called one of her minute memes. If you go to questioncopyright.org, you can find that one. She's done two or three now. Um, and it's uh, it's about how all art is uh, all art is imitation or something like that. It's a really cool video she did too, uh, Nina Paley. Okay, uh, next one. Rem, if you remember, Rem is the one who makes the BlackBerry phone, and they were already were extorted by NTP, this patent troll company basically. Um, uh, Jog just posted the link to the drum beat. That's true. That is that's right. That looks like it. Uh, anyway. Um, uh, so R BlackBerry was already sued by, for patent infringement by NTP, and they ended up having to pay $612 million to settle it. Um, well, now they're under attack again. So Intellectual Ventures is this big patent 
acquisition company founded by – I want to say Nathan Mirvold. I think he was a former CTO for Microsoft. So what they do is they go around buying up people's patents, and then they use them to um, extort money from people basically. Um, so I don't know if they extorted money from REM or if REM approached them, but it's the same thing. It's a threat one way or the other. But anyway, so REM made a deal with them to get the right to be covered by 30,000 of their patents. Now, they, REM may be doing this defensively. They may be basically getting some kind of right to be protected from some of the huge number of patents IV has acquired to use defensively or to keep people from suing them. I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's kind of interesting. Intellectual Ventures uh, made $700 million last year on licensing revenue from licensing all these patents it has. Uh, some of you may have seen this. Um, the, the band Minute Work uh, had this famous song in the uh, 80s, um, I Come From a Land Down Under. I think that's the name of the song. Yeah, Down Under. And um, they were sued for copyright infringement by some company that owns the rights to some little children's uh, ditty Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree, and I actually have heard that as a child. Someone hummed that to me. It's some old folk tune or something, and apparently there's one little part of the flute sound or something in in the Minute Work song that sing, sounds similar to the Kookaburra song. And so now they lost, and they repealed it, and they lost their appeal. Um, so they're potentially liable, and the individual singers and the company. Uh, Colin Hay, I think, is now still a singer. Um, for millions of dollars, because this was a very popular song in the 80s, uh, so they're now potentially liable for millions of dollars to this uh, for this, which is absurd. Slide seven, I'm on now. Um, I posted this one this morning, I believe. Um, <clears throat> I've posted two or three times already on this uh, Fabrizyme issue. Um, I, I, I get emails occasionally from the lawyer. Named C. Allen Black. He's actually a patent attorney up in somewhere in the Northeast. And he's representing these two poor people pro bono. Um, this is an outrageous case. Um, basically, there's a company, I think it's called Genzyme. They make this drug called Fabrizyme, which um, treats this genetic illness called Fabry disease, and they're the only ones who make it. Um, it's in short supply because there's only one company making it, and they just can't make enough. And no one else makes it because um, – well, no one else has been licensed to by the FDA, and Pabrazyme or Genzyme has a patent, so no one can make it. And so no one has tried to gear up to make it. No one's applied to the FDA for permission, I guess. Uh, and a lot of this drug is being exported to Europe, and so there's not enough for Americans here or something like that. And the point is that people actually uh, – some might, some might have died already, but this is ruining these people's lives. Um, so the uh, the attorney for them has been trying whatever he could to get drugs to these people somehow, um, to get a, a competitor authorized by the FDA or to get the um, the NIH uh, that's part of the federal government to um, to issue a compulsory license. The federal government has the authority to do that. You see, the federal government issues these patent monopoly grants, so they have the right to um, uh, authorize some other company. … to grant a license. If, so if the patent holder won't, won't grant a license, the government has the right to do that uh, instead of them, um, and then they can compensate the company. It's, it's sort of like a – it's almost like an eminent domain thing. Uh, the federal government threatened to do this, by the way, in the, um, in the anthrax scare about uh, eight, eight or so years ago in the US. 
when after in the wake of 9/11 and terrorism and all this stuff, uh, there were some anthrax um, received in some envelopes. Um, and there's this drug called Cipro, which treats it, and it was in short supply, or, it was the, or, or the company that makes it uh, – I can't remember. Is it Bayer or someone? Whoever makes Cipro was charging like outrageous – I don't know, like $200 a pill or something. I mean it was crazy, and so Congress uh, or, the, or some agency of the federal government threatened to issue a compulsory license if they didn't uh, charge a more reasonable fee, and they, so they kind of backed off and lowered their price, I believe, to keep the federal government from – Busting their busting their patent monopoly on anthrax drug Cipro, uh, but what was I thought uh, just pathetic about um, the most recent action in this Fabrizon case? I've got it here on slide seven. Um, so he, this guy Alan Black, is try he sued, he's applied for a compulsory license, and he keeps losing. And the latest thing he's tried, he went to the NIH and he. He tried something called a marching request. Okay, it's another type of petition, basically begging them to issue a, a compulsory license, and they denied it. And one reason they gave is is that because of the administrative uh, uh, the, the administrative uh, delays of its sister agency, the FDA, make it impossible to make the drug in time. In other words, they say it wouldn't do any good to authorize a, a competitor to make this drug because uh, the other part of the federal government. Uh, is slowing things down so much that it wouldn't get out in time anyway. In other words, I guess by the time um, um, competitors will gear up, Genzyme may have their, their their production geared up as well. So in the meantime, uh, these guys are screwed. So it's, it's almost like the FDA and the uh, in, a, in the uh, in the patent office together are causing basically people to suffer. Jock just posted. Hold on a second, Ethan. Get up. Jock just posted that um, Fabrizyme is, is being paid $250,000 per patient per year, or not Fabrizyme, Genzyme for the Fabrizyme drug. So they're making $250,000 a year, um, which is which is uh, which is obscene. Excuse me for just 15 seconds. Okay, so that's some good news. I think it's important to have a to see this stuff every week to have a feel for what's really going on going out uh, on out there. Um, in the last um, um, course I gave or IP, someone asked this question, which I answered because I had not really addressed it um, in the preceding lecture. And again, it's good to have a foundation and understanding what the law is. Um, before we get to arguments about it and policy questions. So they were asking what exactly are trolls, and you might have heard the term of patent trolls. There's even copyright trolls out there now. Um, um, the intellectual ventures company in a way is a patent troll. A patent troll is someone who uh, – uh, well, they use the metaphor because they can – you know, so they, they can extract the toll for crossing the bridge. right? Basically, they can make you pay a fine or a license. A fee to use your own product, and the reason they're different than other patent holders is they usually don't um, make the product that's covered by their patent. So I think it's a strange category because they're really not different than other patentees. So for example, um, if 
I make laser printers like HP, and let's say they sue Brother, another laser printer maker, for infringing one of the laser printer patents on HP's laser printers. Well, you know, there's a good chance that Brother has its own arsenal of patents and can counter sue HP. So they might be able to fight back. You know, uh, so neither one's a troll because they both have patents that cover their inventions. But but you know, so what? I mean, what what if um, you know what if HP among its huge patent arsenal has a patent on um, you know ink technology, and they sue uh, some ink company that has nothing to do with with laser printers, or they sue some other company, I, mean, I don't know, lamination company or car company, uh, you know. That that company may not have any laser printer patents that they can counter sue HP with, so they're defenseless just as if HP was a troll. So I don't see – it's a weird category. The problem is not that they're trolls. The problem is that people have patents that they can sue people for, um, so it's sort of a bizarre uh, criticism. Uh, uh, now, the patent law has – does not require… Uh, at least in the U.S., doesn't have what's called a working requirement. In other words, you don't have to make a device that practices your patent to have a patent. You don't even have to ever, ever make one and prove it can work. Now, the law requires you to reduce your idea to practice. You have to reduce it to practice, but they make an exception, and they say that… If you file a patent application that has a written description of how your idea would work, which the patent application has to have that. You have to have a written description. Then that's called a constructive reduction of practice. So in other words, filing a document that you know I can sit down and in one hour have an idea and write it on – type it up on a piece of paper, file it, and I've now made this thing. In the eyes of the law, constructively. So you never do have to make it. So the point is, the law has never required that. So people that complain about patent trolls, uh, you know, it's like complaining that some people uh, get on welfare. Well, if you put a saucer of milk out, a cat's going to come up and drink from it, right? I mean, if you create a patent system that gives someone a legally enforceable right that they can get by following, following through the certain uh, hoops, jumping through certain hoops. People are going to do it, and to blame them for doing what you set up a legal incentive for makes no sense whatsoever. They're not abusing the system at all. Uh, now, it is true there are junk patents out there, but that's not what patent trolls are, patent trolls are accused of. Their patents may be just as good as uh, anyone else's. A junk patent is a patent that should not have been issued even by the standards of the patent office. Now, of course, the patent office is totally incompetent, and, uh, and the standards are vague and, and arbitrary. Um, Anyway, so there's no objective way to know when a patent should be issued or should not be in a lot of cases. Um, but you know, the problem with the patent system is not that there are bad patents issued. The problem with the patent system is not that people abuse it. The problem is that good patents are issued, and the problem is when people follow the rules and use these legal rights that the government gives them. This is the problem. Now, I would be in favor of, and I've written – Articles on it. I would be in favor of reforming the law to require a working requirement, um, if only because that would tend to make it harder to get a patent, and it would tend to reduce the number of total patents out there. But that's my only motivation for that. Is, I mean, 
Patent trolls are not a problem, in my opinion. Um, in my last course, someone had asked this question. I will just mention it briefly here. Someone asked a question about photography. Who owns the, um, um, the copyright in the photograph? And it is actually the photographer. And you know, one strange thing about that is that most people um, uh, don't think about. Uh, you know, let's say you're on vacation and you hand your camera to a stranger to take a snap a picture of you and your, uh, you know, you and your your spouse. Um, I mean, theoretically, you have a a photograph in your camera that you own, you know, your own camera of yourself on your own vacation. That you don't have the you don't own the copyright to some stranger owns it and you don't even know who he is, so I mean there's just all you know no one makes a big deal about it because he's a stranger, but theoretically you don't even have that copyright. So copyright law has lots of weird um, aspects to it. Okay, now let's do this. Um, I talked historically about some of the uh, the key uh, the key things in history. The key things in history that led to um, patent and copyright, <clears throat> I want to just summarize for you, go over with you, just so you get a, a feel for this monstrous, uh, arcane, complicated web of um, IP-related laws around the world that form the current national and international patent system. So I'll talk about the international aspects and also in the U.S. case primarily. Um, and plus the English in, in terms of the history here. So let's just start historically again. Remember, 1624 um, was the statute of monopolies of 1623. I, actually, I can never find the right way to cite this thing. Everyone cites it differently. I think it's called the statute of monopolies of 1623 because that's when it was um, uh, uh, you know, probably uh, introduced into parliament or something, but it was approved in 1624. So I've seen it both ways. Same thing with the statute of Anne, 1709, 1710. Anyway. So one of the original key statutes for patents was 1624 Statute of Monopolies in England. One of the original copyright statutes was 1710 in England, the Statute of Anne. Okay? Then actually one of the first modern so-called general patent laws was 1691 South Carolina. Um, now I'm going to go to slide 11 now. Uh, now let's get to the modern system and use the U.S. as the um, – uh, it's a good as a good exemplar, and actually, I think we have one of the oldest in the world uh, constitutions and uh, IP systems. Uh, strangely enough, given that we're U.S. is a relatively young country. Anyway, um, uh, on photographs, Jock asks, "Isn't it the subject in France like that photograph of the kiss?" I'm actually not sure. Um, I would doubt it would be a different result in France, but if you know differently, let me know. Um, okay, so in the modern U.S., I've mentioned the four main types of IP the, uh, or patent, copyright, trademark, and trade secret. So just – I want to give you a feel for where these laws come from right now, what their source is, what governs them. So in the U.S., the patent – patent and copyright both are authorized by the Constitution. So I don't think they're unconstitutional, although some people say that they are because there's a clause that says um, to promote the progress of science and the useful arts, Congress can you know, give authors and inventors these limited monopolies. And what they say is there's no proof that, that 
patent and copyright laws do promote the progress of science and useful arts. And actually, I agree that they don't promote it. They actually impede it. Um, so they say that it doesn't fulfill the constitutional purpose. Therefore, it's unconstitutional. You know, I'd be happy if the court would strike it down on that ground, but I don't think that's a good argument. I think that that language is what's called merely precatory. It's just explaining why they're giving Congress this power, but it, the power is actually not limited by that purpose. Uh, there's a similar argument in the Second Amendment for for gun rights. You know, uh, to provide for you know national defense, what is it, whatever it says, the, uh, the the right, the freedom to bear arms shall not be infringed. And uh, you know, we we gun rights advocates say that that's an individual right to bear arms, and the clause before it is not a limiting clause. It's just explaining one reason that that power is in there or that right is in there in this case. Anyway, patent and copyright are authorized by the Constitution, which was um, ratified in 1789, 1789. Okay, So soon after, the, the very next year, there was a Patent Act of 1790 and a pa Copyright Act of 1790. Uh, it might have been 1791. I've seen different uh, reports, but it was around that time. Uh, now patents are governed by the Patent Act of 1952, a more modern one, and of course has been modified since then. It's in Title 35 of the U.S. Code, USC. Copyright… Uh, and by the way, it's administered by the USPTO, United States Patent and Trademark Office, which is part of the Department of Commerce. Okay. Now, it's, I don't really – okay, so let's go on. Copyright uh, is governed by Title 17 of the United States Code, and it's administered by the Copyright Office, which is part of the Library of Congress. So these actually are governed by different um, parts of the federal government. I'm not sure why or how that happened. Now, strangely enough, trademark law, the federal aspect of it, which is a Lanham Act, which was passed in 1946, that's also administered by the USPTO. That's why it's called the PTO, Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, yeah, Gwen just quoted the, um, the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So gun uh, opponents have argued that that first expression limits the second. In other words, saying the right is only for the purpose of having a militia, so then that's subject to regulation by the states because they control militias. Um, but the court actually, I think, strangely and correctly rejected that in that fairly recent um, – was it Heller? I think the Heller case it recognized <coughs> a right to bear arms is a personal individual right. Right. Anyway. Uh, Trademark is mostly – well, used to be mostly state law, based in state law, common law, and then state statutes. Uh, the government – the federal government passed the Lanham Act in 46. Now, I believe it's unconstitutional because there is no author authorization in the Constitution for the federal government to regulate trademark. Um, they based it on the Interstate Commerce Clause, which says that the government – the federal government can regulate commerce between the states, which they've taken over the years to, to, to use as basically – an authorization to do anything they want because they just say um, um, as long as it has an some activity has an effect on interstate commerce, the federal government can regulate it. Uh, the famous case, by the way, if you want to read a case that will just make you go crazy, it's, it's Wickard v. Filburn, W-I-C-K-A-R-D versus Filburn. I think it's F-I-L-B-U-R-N. Uh, in that case, this is back in the New Deal era. And, um, for, under FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, um, uh, you know the federal government was issuing all these quasi-socialist decrees, and they were telling this wheat farmer um, who who grew wheat 
if I remember the facts right, he grew wheat on his own farm, not even to sell it, which arguably enters the stream of commerce and affects interstate commerce. But he sold wheat just to feed his own pigs okay, or something like that. But that violated all these controls over wheat growth, and he, he fought it. And the court sided with the federal government. They, his argument was that this law is unconstitutional because the federal government has no authority to tell me what to do with my own um, property. Um, there's no enumerated power. But the, the federal the court said, well, you know, if this guy grows his own wheat and feeds his own pigs, if he's allowed to do that, now notice this word allowed. This is how they view us, um, giving us permission to live. Uh, if he's allowed to do that, then he won't buy wheat on the market to feed his pigs, and that will affect how much wheat is purchased on the market. So in an cumulative effect, if everyone did this, then it would affect the the uh, interstate commerce between the states. I mean, it's insane. They've used this to justify everything. Not until the 80s, I think, or the 90s, did some Clarence Thomas-related decisions. Did they start choking back a little bit? I think the USD Lopez case was a school gun. Uh, it was you know the federal government tried to regulate how close guns could be to a school, um, and finally the court said, look, what, that's got nothing to do with interstate commerce. Um, yeah, mid 90s. Um, so, and they've they've done that a few times, but they're hesitant to to go too far with that because if they do go too far, reigning in the power of the feds to use this broad interpretation of the interstate commerce clause, then you know half the federal government would just be unconstitutional. Um, now, trade secret is mostly state law based. It still is, uh, but even here the feds have gotten into the act. They passed this um, uh, Uniform Trade Secrets Act in '79. Which makes it, if I recall, a federal criminal crime in some cases. I think when interstate commerce is involved, to um, steal a trade secret. Okay. Now, let's look at some modern additions to these four basic rights. 1997. So let's look at copyright first. 1997, the No Electronic Theft Act, the NET Act, was passed. That provides criminal prosecution for copyright infringement. Up to five years in prison and 250k in fines. Now, 1998, the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act. You guys might remember Sonny Bono. He was the other half of Sonny and Cher, the singing duo from the 60s, and um, he was a Republican congressman later. And uh, he uh, went skiing without a helmet and ran into a tree in Colorado, I think, and killed himself um, or California. Um, I guess in the 90s. Probably right around this time. Anyway, this act is called the Sony Bono Act. That's what extended copyright term by 20 years to the current term, uh, life of the author plus 70 years, um, or for a, what's called a work for hire, where a corporation is the owner of the copyright and the author of it because it was a work for hire. In that case, it lasts for 120 years uh, from… Creation, I think, or 95 years from publication, whichever is shorter, and it's almost always shorter. 95 is almost almost always the number. So basically, it's roughly a hundred years term. Um, it was so 20 years. It used to be 50 and 75. Um, and it's also called the Mickey Mouse Protection Act because Disney lobbied for this to keep Mickey Mouse from going into the public domain. And uh, let's see, that was 1998. So it's one. You know, maybe in five or so years we'll we'll see Mickey Mouse Protection Act number two, and 
maybe copyright will be life of the author plus 90 years or you know, um, 115 years in the case of work for hire so that Mickey Mouse will be spared being released into the public domain yet again. Now, this was a big one that I was really bad, the DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. You'll see there was a lot of activity in the 90s. There's a lot going on right now too, by the way. Um, 1998, the DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act, um, made it a crime to to possess, I believe, or to you know to use or sell at least a piece of technology if it could circumvent DRM, basically. Um, so, in my mind, basically every computer is is everyone's a criminal for having a computer because a computer could be can be used to crack, you know, to hack and crack and unencrypt, right? Um, it's crazy. Um, the DMC also added this protection for boat hull designs. So now you have this subset of copyright law which protects the way that boat hulls, the way boat hulls look. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess the boat hull, the boat lobby, the yachting lobby <laughs> had a friend in Congress or something. I mean, it's crazy. Um, now, one interesting thing about the DMCA. Now, this was at the dawn of the internet. I mean, I, I was practicing patent law back then. I remember when this came out. We were studying exactly what this would do. They put in there this safe harbor for what they called at the time OSPs and uh, ISPs, Internet Service Providers. Um, and they were thinking back then of companies like, oh, I don't know, um, America Online. And what they did was they provided a safe harbor, which says that we're not going to regard like an ISP like America Online at the time. Um, now I guess it would be whoever your ISP is. You know, we're not going to regard them as a publisher of the information that goes through their system and, and is put on websites. Let's say that they're hosted through their systems, um, <clears throat> so they're not going to be responsible legally for the information that some user puts up there. Like if it's a copyright infringement or if it's defamation, for example, we're not going to make the ISP be the publisher of that. Um, if they don't actively get involved with it and if they respond to these takedown notices. So at the time, no one knew. We, none of us understood. No one knew who was going to be liable for copyright infringement, and a lot of ISPs in the beginning used to be sued for all this stuff. So they were afraid of liability. So Congress put that in there. Now, that has turned out to be a big deal. I mean and some of you may have heard of the DMCA takedown process. This is where it came from. And it's used all the time now, and it's it's. I mean, I hate the DMCA and I hate the copyright law, but that part of the DMCA I think has helped um, freedom on the internet because it's a, it's made it kind of clear that a large number of service providers are not responsible for what users put up there. Okay, um, and I actually don't think Congress would have put that in there if they would have understood how it how it would have been used because this this been used. … in a lot of creative ways by a lot of companies that maybe weren't quite contemplated because they didn't know how the internet was going to develop. So this safe harbor is important. Um, trademark law, as I mentioned, 1940-something um, with the Lanham Act, which federalized a large part of trademark law in the U.S. Um, 
something called anti-dilution was added in 1995 and revised again a couple years ago. This made – see, up until then, uh, I mean trademark law has problems too, in my opinion, from a libertarian point of view. But the basic standard was um, kind of like a fraud standard because it was – is someone using a mark in a way that is likely to cause consumer confusion? That was the standard. You know, and that's similar to a fraud standard, which I think is the only good basis of trademark law. It could be based upon fraud. It's something like it could be based on fraud. So if you're confusing a consumer because you have a mark too similar to a competitor's, you know, they could be deceived or defrauded. So consumer confusion. Well, that wasn't good enough for a lot of these guys. So they got Congress to add anti-dilution. So now you can be in trouble even if the mark even if the way you have a mark on your uh, product is not even likely to cause consumer confusion. That's right. So you got that. It's not confusing the consumer, but it might dilute the value of the other guy's mark because it tarnishes it or it associates it with the wrong ideas. So it's got nothing to do with trademark infringement actually now. So that's terrible. <coughs> Causes lots of mischief. I've got lots of horror stories about the Anti-Dilution Act, anti-dilution cause of action being used. Um, I think I misspoke earlier when I talked about the um, that trade secret law. This is the one here that I mentioned on this page, the the, the Economic Espionage Act of '96. Another see another law in the '90s. Um, this is a federal law that makes the theft of a trade secret again. I think it's one in interstate commerce, but it makes it a federal crime. Now let's talk about the international system. The major international bodies that govern all this is the is the WTO, the World Trade Organization. So, you know, their basic goal is to liberalize international trade. But of course, since everyone has been deluded with the idea that Western-style IP rights are part of a capitalist uh, free trade property rights system, this is used to push developing and backward countries, you know, as, you, as they might think of them, um, to adopt our type of IP. And then you have the United Nations agency that's devoted to IP protection, the World. Intellectual Property Organization, or WIPO, which is like the Darth Vader of, you know, or the Death Star of uh, of IP. Uh, now, as for treaties, there's lots of treaties that govern uh, trademark, patent, and copyright around the world. Um, some of them require nations to respect others' rights uh, or rights of citizens in their country, uh, like copyright. Some require minimum standards. That all countries that are members to, to these treaties should meet. So one of the earliest one is the Paris Convention in 1883. By the way, you'll notice there's called for the protection. I'm on slide 14 right now, by the way. Paris Convention for the Protection of Industrial Property. Uh, in the U.S., we call it intellectual property. It's called industrial property quite often uh, in other countries. Um, in any case, this basically allowed you to file a patent in one country, and then within I don't know six months or a year, depending on one country. File a second application in another country and claim priority back to that date. So you get the filing date. Filing dates matter too when it comes to a battle with someone else or uh, when it comes to what counts as prior art. I mean, if I file on day one and someone publishes an article the next day, that's not prior art for me. If I file it on day one, an article published two years ago is prior art. <clears throat> prior art means what is publicly known and what my patent has to be novel in view of. Is that clear? Um, uh, 
But since the PCT or Patent Cooperation Treaty in 1970, uh, this provided a more unified procedure, um, and this is what is used mostly nowadays. Uh, I use this quite often uh, to file a PCT application, for example. Um, I don't think I've ever used the Paris Convention because you only need to use that when there's a member of the Paris Convention that's not a member of the PCT, um, and, and, and there are fewer and fewer of those. China, for example, used to be a member of the first, I think, but not the second. But now they're a member of the PCT as well. Um, then we have the Berne Convention, 1886. Um, also, the WIPO Copyright Treaty of 1996. These both set international standards for copyright. Now, by the way, so here's a, here's an interesting uh, point about it. Um, the Berne one. Um, so the U.S. is part of the Berne now, and one thing the Berne. And, and I think the WIPO treaty too. One thing they required was um, that there be no formalities uh, to acquire copyright protection. Um, this is why it's automatic now. It used to not be. In the U.S., to obtain a copyright, I think you had to um, put a copyright notice on your work, and maybe you had to even actively register it with the copyright office. I can't remember if it was active registration. I think it was active registration was required to have a copyright, um, similar to the patent system where you don't get a patent unless you apply for it. Um, but since the – I think the 80s when we acceded to burn, if I remember my timing right, uh, we changed the copyright law to comply with it, and we got rid of those requirements. So most people say, uh, uh, why – you know? Kinsella, you're a hypocrite because you copyright your works, or Kinsella, you're a hypocrite. Why don't, you, why don't you just make your work public domain? Well, first of all, I don't copyright anything. No one copyrights anything. People receive a copyright or they have a copyright automatically just by writing you – know, just by publishing an article or writing a paper. The government grants you a copyright in it. You can't stop it. You can't even get rid of it. There's no way to make it public domain. You can't just put a notice on it saying, I hereby make this public domain. That's just – it doesn't it, – it's not true. It's not public domain. Um, so even if we wanted to modify our copyright law and to, say, require active registration, which I think we should, we, we couldn't do it without violating international law. So, so I was talking with uh, Carl Fogel, who's the head of uh, questioncopyright.org um, not too long ago, and… You know, we were discussing this, how even if we could somehow get a movement in Congress to make the copyright system registration – active registration, which would solve the orphan works problem. You know, there's an orphan works problem now where there's tons of works out there in the last 50 years, and no one knows who the author is, or you can't find them, or no one who knows who the owner is, and you can't get permission to make it, so they're just dying, um, or these books are not being republished because um, um, of the orphan work problem. If you required active registration… You could go to some registry. You could see who the author was, whether it was a copyrighted or not, and then you would know. Anyway, we actually couldn't do that. <clears throat> In other words, it would be better to make copyright opt, opt in instead of opt out. But as I mentioned to Carl, it's not even opt out because you can't opt out of it. I mean there is no way to get rid of copyright that I'm aware of, no reliable way. Creative Commons licenses can help somewhat, but it still doesn't get rid of the copyright, and I'm not quite sure that they're completely enforceable. Um, the CC0 would be the closest to public domain, but 
there's doubt about whether that one's legally enforceable because of these treaties and because of local laws. Um, Jock asks, what is this about author asserts his moral rights? I'm not sure where you read that from or what you're talking about. Um, I think that word is used a little bit ambiguously or in different ways. Uh, moral rights um, refers primarily um, – okay, he said it's on the front matter of books. I don't remember seeing it that much before, but um, it, um, I think it's more of a European thing. I know like in France, for example, there's a moral right, which is the right – it's sort of like an adjunct to copyright. It's the right to be attributed as the author of a work, um, and if I understand how the law works in countries that have this, I don't think we have the same thing in the U.S. Um, I think the moral right is said to be an inalienable right. I mean literally they call it inalienable, so you cannot contract out of it. You cannot get rid of it. Um, I seem to recall studying some cases a long time ago um, where, for example, um, I think it also has to do with preventing your work from being defaced. So I think there was a case where some artist had a – I want to say he had a, he had a refrigerator. And he had painted something on the refrigerator, and then he sold – he left his apartment, and someone else moved in, and they were going to throw the refrigerator away, and he got an injunction to stop them from doing it. Or there may be cases where like you have a mural on a building, and the artist doesn't own the building anymore, but he gets an injunction from the court to stop the current owner from painting over it or demolishing the house um, because um, uh, it would deface his work. I think that's a type of moral right too. So I'm actually not sure if it means anything other than that. So I'm assuming that the authors are doing that. They're saying I have to be attributed as the author of this no matter what, something like that. Um, Gwen asks, am I familiar with some of the open source characters like Jenny Everywhere that have a permissive license? And then you have a link here. No, I never heard of that. Um, I do know there's a movement among a lot of open source types to… Have open licenses and things, but a lot of them do non-commercial, um, which I think is terrible. I mean, Nina Paley is an artist, and she explains. I mean, she does copyleft, uh, which I understand why. I don't like copyleft because it still imposes a requirement on the uh, user to impose another copyleft on anyone they any, on any derivative work they make. I tend to prefer Creative Commons attribution only. Um, I figure that's the the closest enforceable license to public domain because all you're requiring them to do is uh, put your name on it, which they would do in most cases anyway. I mean attribution is commonly done anyway, so I figure you're not imposing any really onerous requirement on people. I mean I would love to do CC0 on my stuff, but I'm afraid it, it won't work, and that's to the detriment of the user. If they can't rely on it, then they, they're you – know, maybe I change my mind and will try to sue them someday. Um, so you know they need to be able to count on the license. <clears throat> oh, Gwen says it's all rights reversed. Yeah, I think that's one of these cutesy, artsy things. It's supposed to mean something like copyleft, which is mm, I, don't, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's legally enforceable because it's not really that carefully defined. May, maybe it is somewhere. It might be interpreted to be like copyleft or CCBY. Creative Commons by is attribution only. <clears throat> it's it's 9 p.m. my time here. Uh, why don't we do this? Let's take a five-minute break. It's 9.02. We'll, we'll resume at 9.07, and um, 
maybe I'll talk for 15 more minutes and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop and see if there's any, any more questions. Someone asks, uh, oh, I thought I saw another question. Oh, Donald says, um, are there countries that are resisting or partially resisting current patent and copyright agreements? Um, well, I mean, I think there are some countries that have never signed up, but I mean, I think they're regarded as not very important countries. Um, you know, what happens is the Western countries are always twisting the arms of the holdouts that are significant, like Russia and I don't know, China and India, and they finally all get come along. But now they're working on getting them to um, actually comply with the laws. I mean, you know, outside of the U.S., my my general impression is outside of maybe Canada and the U.S. Um, well, I was going to say pi piracy is widespread. IP is respected here, um, and I think that probably used to be the case until the internet and, and Pirate Bay type stuff. So now that's not even the case. But you're not going to find a, you know a bazaar, some guy on the street selling bootleg CDs over here. I mean, I've never seen that, but I've been overseas and you see it all the time. And the generally the poorer and the more developing the country is, the more you see that. You know, Italy and uh, uh, um, uh, Turkey and uh, China, I'm sure. Uh, so piracy is more rampant over there. Um, so I think right now they're just trying to get China and Russia, uh, primarily China and India, uh, to really comply and to enforce these laws and have a better court system for lawsuits um, to actually stop piracy, not just have it on the books but enforce the law. Oh, Jock is uh, putting a link up to some report on international power. Is this the one that came up just the other day? Um, it's some like huge report by some group. I forgot the group. Yeah, there was actually an interchange between him and Mike Masnick on TechDirt uh, between the guy that was behind that study. He was kind of fussing at them for um, charging like, I don't know, $8 to get the report if you're from the U.S. or some rich country, but um, it was free in other countries. and had some kind of copyright warning on there, and he kind of fussed at him, and the guy said, well, it was tongue-in-cheek, and we're not really going to enforce it. If you if you want to bootleg it, it's okay with us, but I mean, yeah, you can find it if you look. I mean, it was kind of weird, the interchange. Any case, let's, uh, let's, let's continue on here. Um, I'm not going to finish tonight's uh, – all everything I had planned, but that's okay. Uh, it can spill over to next time, um, which is fine, but I would like to finish uh, the overview of the legal system. Um, more on, on treaties, there's a Madrid system too. The Madrid system is based in Madrid, um, Spain, um, just like the European Patent Office is in Munich. I mean, uh, and the United Nations is in New York. I mean, all these countries lobby for these huge new bureaucracies to, um, you know, be, be centered there to so create jobs and business and spending, etc. So this permits international registration of trademarks. It's administered by WIPO. Now, there's also a treaty called GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and the 1994 so-called Uruguay Round covers IP. Finally, the uh, TRIPS, the, uh, the, the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights are called TRIPS. This is an international agreement. Um, administered by the WTO. I told you earlier, it's two of the big agencies are the WIPO and the WTO, um, and this sets minimum standards. Okay. 
there is also this act of, well, I think I have it on the next slide. Let's go on the next slide. Uh, now, what about laws coming down the pike, pending laws? Um, so we have this, this ACTA, Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement. I actually haven't followed it in the last month or two, so I'm not sure where it is right now, but I assume it's still pending. Um, so this is a proposed international agreement that would, uh, that would provide copyright and patent standards and maybe even trademark. I've, I've read through it, and it's a little bit unclear. Um, the problem is it would have a lot of the provisions that are in the DMCA. So I'm really worried about this. One. It probably won't affect America too much, but it will make other countries have more American-style law. Now, what was sneaky about this is – let me explain how international negotiations work on these types of um, things. Um, usually when you have the things like the um, these previous treaties we've talked about, they're negotiated between a large number of countries as a treaty, okay? and those are done – traditionally, those negotiations are done… Um, pretty much publicly, so everyone's aware of what's going on, and there's just, – just like when a law is pending in Congress, people – some people oppose it. Some can give their input, and they can try to stop it if they don't like it, whatever. Well, trade agreements usually are between two countries. Sometimes they're multilateral, but trade agreements are typically negotiated uh, in secret between countries. Okay, But when you do an intellectual property… Treaty is usually done as a treaty because that's what it is. It's not. It's not really trade agreements. Is, is about like uh, how we're going to um, um, impose tariffs on each other. You know, like the NAFTA or like um, bilateral bilateral trade agreements between countries or multilateral trade agreements. Uh, trade agreements affect how countries trade with each other. So they wanted to impose these more rigorous standards, um, I, I, patent and copyright standards, on a worldwide basis. But they didn't want to impose – they didn't want to negotiate it in public because they knew that it would be controversial. So instead of doing it the normal way, they tried to sneak it in as, an, as a trade – that's what they call it, the Anarchanifitting Trade Agreement. Um, and this law professor in Canada, Michael Geist, G-E-I-S-T, he – someone leaked to him the um, – um, the, uh, a draft of it, and it got leaked, and so now it kind of – I. From what last I read, some of the offensive provisions have been taken from it. So if it does get passed, it will have been partially defanged, which is good, although it's still probably going to be bad. Uh, another one that's coming, which I'm really worried about, is the COICA, Combating Online Infringement and Counterfeits Act. Um, uh, this, would uh, this would allow uh, domain names accused of piracy… To be blocked, they're treated as what's called in rem. Like uh, that's an action against a piece of property in rem instead of in personam, instead of against the person. So they wouldn't even have to know who owns it or who the person running it is. They just will go in and seize that that one. And then there's also talk about adding IP for fashion and database rights. Uh, some chefs want uh, copyright for food recipes. Some bartenders want copyright for their drink mixes. I mean, I'm not kidding. It's terrible. Um, I don't know if I have it on this page. Okay, I'm, this is the end of this part, so let me just stop for a second. I don't have it on the slides, but I did a post on it, I think, a week or two ago on Mises blog and on C4SIF. Uh, you might want to look it up. It's a post about pending patent reform. Um, 
patent reform has been pending for, I don't know, 10 years, and it never passes. Um, it's never a good idea in my opinion because they never do anything radical. They just change a few things. Um, but it looks like the timing is right, and there was a bill um, – uh, I think it's S Senate 32 or something. Anyway, it's, it's on my site. Um, there's a bill pending, and it passed the Senate 95 to 5, and sadly uh, Rand Paul voted for it. Um, maybe they don't understand. Um, you know, Most of the changes are neutral. Some are negative. None are horribly negative that I recall, <coughs> but it's just moving deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not really – the main significant substantive change is they would change our American system from um, – what's called a first to invent to first to file. My understanding is most countries in the world have a first to file system. That is if two people have a similar invention and they both file a patent application for it, the one who filed first will win the battle, and he'll get the patent, and the other guy will not. Uh, in the US, we've always had a first to invent system where if, one, if two guys file for patents, and then it turns out they're very similar… Then they have an action called an interference proceeding, interference proceeding, which is sort of an administrative lawsuit uh, before the PTO or some some court. Anyway, they will decide who was the first one to conceive of the idea. Okay, I mean it's a, it's not, it's an arcane doctrine. In most cases, it wouldn't make a difference. Uh, anyway, they want to change it. I don't know why they want to change it. I think they think it has a greater legal certainty or something, or it's more like what other countries do. Um, and of course. A lot of people are up in arms about it, but honestly, I don't think it makes a difference. It only makes a difference to patent lawyers because it makes them nervous that now they might have a greater chance of, of malpractice liability because under the current law, you know, it doesn't matter if I file the patent a month late because – I mean it matters a little bit, but it doesn't matter too much because I could still win. Um, I could beat someone in an interference proceeding. If I could just show you know, my client invented it first, and that's not going to change based on when I file it. But if they change the first to file, you know, if I'm a week late and someone else filed a week, you know, two days before me, then my one-week delay could cause my client his patent rights, and so I might get sued for malpractice. So some patent lawyers don't like it, but they're just a bunch of whiners. They, won't, they don't want to learn, learn, learn the new law. I mean law is changing all the time. I really think none of it matters, um, so I'm against it because… Well, first of all, anything Orrin Hatch and Leahy are for, they are the horrible IP uh, sort of whores of the Senate. Um, horrible, horrible. They're always bad on IP, um, so anything they're in favor, I'm against it. Anyway, I have a little summary on the C4SIF blog about that um, patent reform law. I think it's called the America Invent Act. Uh, I mean they have these Orwellian propaganda names for, for their laws. So that's kind of an overview of the… The legal landscape that we're dealing with here. Um, let me just – I won't go on to – let's see. I'm on slide 17, 18. Uh, I will stop at slide 19. I, I won't go there. I'll, I'll save that for next time. Um, but let me just quickly mention um, on the monopoly thing. I just want to make clear. I think I've mentioned this already. Um, the reason uh, – Senate 23. I had it wrong. It's not 32. It's 23. Um, first of all, some IP proponents get upset if you call patent and copyright monopolies. 
Well, I mean, of course, they are monopolies. They might not give you monopoly power in every case. That would count as monopoly power under the antitrust law, uh, but there are little monopolies, privileges. I mean they were called the statute of monopolies originally. Um, this was never originally called intellectual property, um, and it wasn't regarded as intellectual property. It was regarded as a policy tool by the state to reach a certain you know, desired end, to encourage innovation or you know, whatever. Um, it was it's, it's, it was called property later on when people started attacking it. So they're saying, oh no, this is a property right. So they were trying to lump it in with other property rights that people respected. Okay, this I mean, Fritz Macklup concluded this in '50. He said that those who started using the word property in connection with inventions had a very definite purpose in mind. They wanted to substitute a word with a respectable connotation or property for a word that had an unpleasant ring, privilege. Or monopoly as well. All right, let me go to slide 18 now. Um, uh, anyway, that's just more of the same from Maclup. So um, I could go on further. I tell you what, I will. I will pause here and see if anyone has any questions. I'd be happy to answer questions for the remainder of the time. And if there are no questions, I could um, cover another slide or two. Any questions? Any comments? Anyone want to discuss anything? Jock's reading Bolger and Levine. Um, it's a great book. I mean, it's uh, the pharmaceutical chapter is really good because it just has tons of um, um, great empirical uh, analysis of the, the traditional arguments for pharmaceutical patents. Um, now, I just and Bolger and Levine, by the way, they're great. Um, the book is wonderful. But you know they're not – actually, they've become more libertarian and even more anti-AP since this book has been out. Um, I've been blogging on his blog, againstmonopoly.org, on Levine's blog, um, and uh, – but there's a part in there where they say something like they would prefer you know, uh, instead of a patent, they would prefer the government to subsidize you know, federal research or something like that. So they sort of – you know, they're not pure libertarians, but they're, they're pretty damn good. Jock says, I don't know how the world still functions. I don't – you mean with all these laws? I think it gums up the works. I mean I've done estimates. I think, I think that you know, the patent system alone in the US alone has got to cost at least $40, $50 billion of just pure damage, pure dead weight. I think it's really more than that. Um, this whole IP mentality affects everything. In fact, if you think about it, I, I know these guys… Um, some libertarians like Alex Tabarrok and um, also Bernie Sanders, who's a socialist senator from Vermont, I think, and um, um, Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel Prize winner, um, and uh, uh, I think James Madison way back in 1789. They proposed a system where you take tax dollars, put it into a big pot, you appoint a panel of government and industry experts… And they pick winners, the most innovative designs of the year, and they grant, they give them rewards to incentivize innovation. Um, Tabarrok and others have, have uh, pushed for a 30 to I think 80 billion dollar uh, pot of money just for medical innovation. And now, to their credit, they want to replace the patent system, and I think this might be an improvement. It might be a more honest. 
um, improvement. But my, my point here is that they want to have $80 billion of tax – billion of tax money every year go to just medical innovators. Now, if you expand that to all patents, I don't know what would it have to be, $500 billion a year? So that would be the surface cost of, um, of the system. Now, presumably you'd get some innovation out of it. What's it worth? Is it worth a trillion? Is it worth $200 million? Billion? I don't know. But that's some idea of the cost of the system. That, to my mind, that's a proxy for the cost of the patent system, and I think it's clearly in the, in the tens or hundreds of billions of dollars uh, every year. Matt says, uh, I was thinking after its expiration date, an item that was considered property is property no longer. Well, this is why I think it's actually not correct to call these property. They're, the, original, the originators of the, of the system, um, um, the founding fathers, did not think of it as property. It was just a policy tool. Uh, even John Locke, who was somewhat in favor of this idea, he didn't regard it as property. Um, yeah, of course it's not a natural right. It's not natural property if it expires. I mean that's not a, that's not what natural rights do. To the to the con to the contrary, natural rights tend to be inalienable, right? <clears throat> uh, Carl says incenting innovation is like the scientific grants for pure research. I agree. So it, we actually already have this system in place in a way. We have federal intervention in research, and I would encourage anyone interested in that look up the work of. Um, Terence Keeley, K-E-A-L-E-Y. In fact, he's on the advisory panel of my C4SIF, so just look on C4SIF.org, and yeah, he's got a book called Sex, Science, and Profit. It's wonderful. He's got a great chapter. Uh, he spoke at the HOPA's uh, Property Freedom Society last year right after I did. I spoke on patents, and he spoke on government intervention in research, and it was a perfectly complimentary talk. It was great, and yeah, he shows how they totally pervert it and distort it. Um, Danny says – Danny Gagney. By the way, Danny, where do you – just curious. I used to know a guy named Paul Gagney. He was a patent lawyer. Well, no, actually he wasn't a patent lawyer. He was a trademark lawyer in uh, Philadelphia, Paul Gagney. I don't know if you are related to him or know him. Anyway, okay. Um, <clears throat> is the anti-dilution clause in trademark law the reason so many films, videos, and photographs blur out the logos of other companies so they don't besmirch the reputation of the company? You know what? I actually do not know. I've wondered that myself. Um, I'm not really an entertainment lawyer, so I haven't really gotten into the nitty-gritty of that. Um, I've, I've had theories about why they do it, but I'm actually not sure. But I mean, I, the theory I was thinking was um, um, these companies wouldn't pay for product placement. <laughs> so basically, they go to all these companies. They say we're gonna we'll place your product in our movie. Uh, but you got to pay us five hundred thousand dollars or whatever, and you know, and if you don't do it, we're going to blur your logo out. It will not show. That's our policy. Um, so, are you laughing at me, baby? Or, or okay, the book. Okay, so, um, so I think that's probably why they do it. I don't think that. So here's the way trademark works. Um, the the dilution thing would have more to do with a similar mark. Okay, um, that is too close. Or if you use the mark in association with something that tarnishes it, I don't think it's any dilution, and I don't think it's a trademark violation either. It's like, for example, 
in the U.S. anyway, the U.S. law is a little bit different. Um, my understanding is in um, in Europe, in Europe, most European countries, it's a, it's a violation of trademark right for a competitor to show his competitor's trademark. Uh, whereas in the U.S., so-called comparison ads are perfectly uh, permissible because – so let's say you could have a Coca-Cola ad could say, we did a taste test between Pepsi and Coke, and the results show that people prefer Coca-Cola to Pepsi-Cola. And they could even have a you know show the Pepsi can because they're not pretending that they are Pepsi. They're not uh, confusing anyone about the source of goods. They do that. They sometimes say Brand X, but they don't have to in the U.S. But I believe they have to in Europe. Um, also, it's uh, patent and copyright are different than trademark. Uh, tra trademark, for example, it is not a violation of trademark to use someone's trademark in a truthful way. So, for example, um, take the game Trivial Pursuit. Okay, um, I think this is a good example. Um, there's a trademark on Trivial Pursuit, I'm sure. There's probably a little R by it. By the way, you'll see TM and R in parentheses or in a circle. Uh, TM means you're claiming trademark in it, which you don't have to do to claim trademark, but it helps to put people on notice. Uh, if you file an application to register it as a federal trademark, when it's finally issued, which takes, I don't know, six months, then it's registered. So you put the R. That means registered trademark. Um, if it's a service mark, you might put SM instead of TM. That means it's a service mark, but it's the same idea. Um, anyway, um, I'll, I'll wrap up in two minutes here. I, I do want to end close to on time because I know it's late for some people. Um, but let me finish uh, my comment, which was um, – um, if if I made a set of cards with my own questions that could work with Trivial Pursuit, I can sell them, and I could put on the box, here's a set of cards that will that are compatible with Trivial Pursuit. As long as I don't like use their sort of design and try to fool people into thinking that I'm authorized by that maker. I mean, I might put my company's name on there and say, you know, can sell it enterprises. Here's a set of um, improved Trivial Pursuit cards. So you can mention a trademark as long as you're telling the truth and if it's um, um, you know, in, in such a case. Uh, any more – Gwen, you posted a link to Greeking. Let me see what that – I don't know what Greeking is. That is this the brand X idea? Let's see what this is here. Oh. I don't know what that is. Obscuring portions of the – okay, blurring out things, blurring of logos. Oh, one more thing. I think they also – you'll notice in movies and TV shows, they blur out – well, they use fake phone numbers. Like it's always 555, um, or you know, if they show on – a, on, a, on a 60 Minutes or a news show, if they show someone's um, I don't know, a, a court document or, or something with – Names so quite often blur the names that I think that's I think that's um, just out of general respect for children or for people's privacy. You don't want people's social security numbers getting out there, or things like that, or or their address or their phone number. And they choose fake phone numbers because they don't want to accidentally choose someone's phone number and have that person be harassed and maybe sue the company and you know whatever be be pestered. So I think they do those for other reasons, but I think they blur the logos out. Just so they don't advertise for someone who's not paying for it. I mean, that's my guess. But I don't know if you need permission to show. Like, if you wanted to show the logo, I don't know if you need the permission. Um, now, copyright's a different story. There are some outrageous cases where 
you'll take a photograph and someone is standing, you know, of your friend and they're standing in front of um, uh, a building that, or an architectural work or a or sculpture or even a painting. And then the owner of that, that artwork or that building even will say that you can't publish this photograph without our permission because, you know, this big building in the middle of the square here, the, the federal building or whatever, is copyrighted. So copyright can, can cause problems with documentaries and with photographs and things like that, but trademark I'm actually not sure about. Sorry. Well, why don't we end here? Unless anyone has any more questions, I'd be happy to ask a few more, but I, I know that 90 minutes is pushing it for some people, especially the listeners in their cars. Any more final short questions? Otherwise, we can pick it up next Tuesday. Okay, good. Well, good night, everybody. Jock, congrats on staying up late again. Um, impressive. Enjoyed it, guys, and um, enjoy the questions, and I will see you next Tuesday. Feel free to e email questions or post them on the forum in the meantime.